Welcome to The Drummer's Pathway, the podcast about music, life, and the creative process. Hello, I'm Michael Scott, and welcome to The Drummer's Pathway podcast. As musicians, we are called upon to explore new opportunities, and through these experiences, we are often exposed to different styles and situations which may not always be familiar to us. We can either choose to embrace the challenges with a sense of curiosity and respect, which can allow us to develop our skills to a higher level, or we can choose to stay on the same path, which may be comfortable, but at the same time, won't always allow us to grow. My guest today is Mark Kelso. Originally hailing from Belfast, Ireland, after moving to Toronto as a youth, he went on to pursue a highly successful music career. Mark's ability to play a wide variety of musical styles has helped establish him to become one of Canada's most sought-after drummers. Known for his versatility and incredible sense of musicality, he has worked with hundreds of artists and to date has played on over 450 recordings. From 2005 to 2021, Mark was the head of the percussion department at Humber College and is also a highly regarded educator. In 2016, he released his acclaimed educational DVD, Musician First, Drummer Second. Mark is also an accomplished singer, composer, and producer and is the leader of the Juno-nominated group, The Jazz Exiles. In our interview today, we talk about the importance of listening to each other in any musical situation and why embracing new opportunities and experiences with a positive attitude and commitment to excellence will allow you to develop your creative side and find inspiration in the new experiences, which ultimately provides more potential opportunities for success. Let's get started. So Mark, after getting an early start, initially being inspired by your father, you went on to establish a career as one of Canada's most sought-after drummers by not only embracing each genre you were called to play with enthusiasm and respect, but by also always adopting the philosophy of musician first, drummer second, which is also the name of your highly regarded instructional DVD. So if you look back, where did your interest in this all begin? You know, what gravitated you towards music and in particular the drums? I know your father was a drummer, so I think that's probably where the initial influence came in. Absolutely. Absolutely. Without a doubt, um, if my dad didn't play drums and I stayed in Ireland and didn't come to Canada, I have, I'm not really sure where my life would have went. I'm not sure if I would have even been a musician. You know, it's, it's hard to say. He was such a, a, an important part of my life growing up because I, he was in Irish show bands and some jazz groups in Belfast. And I was always, you know, uh, taken to rehearsals and things with him as a young child. And then he said that I showed an infin affinity to play the drums. And so he got me going. We were actually, I was actually in grade six and I was going around the States with his band and he was on tour in the States for six months and I was going to schools in different cities and I asked him to start teaching me when I was 12. And, uh, and that got me interested in it. And, 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 uh, you know, as most kids did back in those days, you would go through your dad's record collection to see what was there, you know, and he had a lot of buddy rich stuff, tower power stuff and some earth, wind and fire 
Um, you see some John McLaughlin, some uh, Art Blakey, Max Roach, those kind of things. So I just kind of listened to his music when I started. And then those were the things that I started practicing with once I got a, a drum kit. Uh, and then when I hit grade seven uh, at Jane Junior High School up in the Jane, Jane Finch area, um, it had a good little music program there uh, with uh, some teachers, uh, uh, Mr. Phillips and uh, Ron Botnick, and then Dan Moyer, uh, who... I, I was playing saxophone in the concert bands, but in the stage band, I had to audition and I got the position of drums. And that's where I met my good friend, Colin Barrett. He was a year younger than me. I was in grade eight. He would have been in grade seven. And we formed a band like everybody did in, in junior high school. We, we were called the Dynamite Five. <laughs> Two guitars. Uh, actually, uh, three guitars and a bass and drums. And I actually started singing in that band. So I, you know, as you know, I do some singing as well. But uh, so I've been doing that for quite a while since, I guess, since junior high school. So the music thing, it, I just remember always being in the music room whenever I had sort of free time. I would be in the music room going to the drums. And then when I got to high school, um, Paul Minor was my teacher there. And, um, and then uh, Lou Bartolomucci uh, after after he moved schools, uh, after Paul moved schools, and Colin was there again with me, and we were really, I guess in grade seven or eight, I'd already made the decision, this is what I'm going to do. I remember seeing the West Westview band coming to my, my junior high school with, uh, at the time, a female drummer, Wendy Underwood, and she was a great drummer. And I remember talking to her and she says, oh, you got to come to Westview kind of thing. And I went to Westview and got into the music program there and they had a really great stage band program, great music program overall. They had uh, orchestra, concert band, all that thing, that kind of thing. And at that point, I was in it for life. You know, I was really, really dedicated to practicing all the time. I mean, I didn't really play sports. I wasn't interested in sports. I was interested in martial arts, was tied into the music and the drumming for me, but not hockey or football or any of those things. It didn't interest me at all. All my spare time was spent in my bedroom on the drum set. Now, when you started out initially, because your father gave you, you know, some lessons to kind of get you going, you you didn't really do a formal education. At that point, you kind of learned most of your stuff by playing along with records and just playing along with music. Well, my dad had a really, he had really great hands. So he really uh, was a stickler for good hand technique. And, you know, he got me into the whole relaxation thing and uh, using the rebound and, you know, making sure I had a good press roll, uh, you know. And so, and then, yeah, he, he started watching me go. He taught me all my rudiments and a bunch of beats. And then a lot of the rest of the stuff was sort of done by listening to records. So I think because um, I wasn't studying with anybody and I wanted to, f I'm not even sure why I didn't study with anybody. It's a funny thing though. I, I, I never, I don't really think about it, but I'm not even sure why I didn't take lessons with anybody else. I have no idea. It's so long ago now, but uh, at the time I studied with my dad and he said, that's it. I've taught you all I can go, go and play the drums. So I went to, you know, Steve Gadd and David Garibaldi and Graham Lear 
like, uh, you know, and Buddy Rich, like four of my main kind of influences right off the, off the, off the bat. And I tried to sound like them by just playing along. And I think what the difference was for me is, uh, I think my listening skills were at a high level. Um, cause my, I remember my junior high school teacher telling my dad, and of course my dad told me, he said, says your son's at a very high level, much higher than he should be for his age. Um, probably because again, listening to really interesting music, whereas all my friends were listening to sort of rush and rock stuff. I was getting involved in funk, soul, R and B and jazz and big band, which the, you know, for me, the drumming was more interesting. Oh, and then uh, when Memo Acevedo came to my, uh, a percussion player from Colombia came to my high school in grade 11 and started playing samba and some Afro-Cuban things, I was like, what is that? Wait, what is that? And then I just started diving in to that kind of music as well. So I completely left. I, I took a left turn in high school and went into, you know, what, you know, we would call world music or global music as a teenager and I don't know, I didn't know anybody else who was really listening to that kind of stuff. You know, I, I was going out on a limb and then I started meeting musicians who were into that kind of thing. It's just the music sort of drew me into those kind of uh, communities, but uh, definitely um, that's kind of the way it happened. It's kind of a funny backwards sort of thing. And I didn't study again until I got to Humber and I started studying with Roger Flock and uh, Don Vickery. So there was a, you know, a good like four or five year gap where I was just teaching myself via records and hearing things. Well, and I think one of the challenges that many people have when they're studying is it's you can get really caught up in the curriculum aspect of studying and the textbook aspect of studying. And you and you and you learn all of your styles by what's written on the page without actually being exposed to the music itself. I remember one particular lesson that I had with you because um, I came over and I said, I want to learn Samba stuff. At that point, I had a fundamental basic understanding of what it looks like on the page, but I, I had said that I, I've never actually been formally taught how to do this. And your approach was quietly in the background, put on a, a Brazilian track without me really being aware of it. I think you handed me an egg shaker. You made me play this egg shaker for about five minutes while we, ta while, while, while we talked about the, the history of the cultures and some of the political situations and, and how all that stuff came together while I'm continuing to play this egg shaker. And then after about five minutes of it, you're, you're like, okay, let's stand up. So I stood up and then we spent 10 minutes having this conversation even deeper while I'm still playing this egg shaker, feeling like my arm is about to fall off. And then you said, and then you said to me at one point, <laughs> You're probably not aware of this, but your body's actually now starting to move to the music that's playing in the background, which you had quietly playing in the background. And then uh, probably about 15 minutes into this conversation, you then told me to sit behind the drums. And then we started the formal lesson because you said you can't really truly learn music just by learning the notes on the page you have to be exposed to those different things and i had a i had bought a book previously that had a whole bunch of different things in brazilian music and and sambas and i worked through some of it and i hated it because it didn't it didn't connect with me after 
this experience with you i took the book back off the shelf and suddenly it was joyful because i now understood the content and the context behind these sorts of things and i think one of the problems is that too many times people try and learn their music from the reference books but they don't take the time to expose themselves to the actual music as well too and from there you don't get the dynamics you don't get the feel and you need to be able to understand that in order to interpret things correctly and that's something that i always found really helpful from you and from a lot of the people that are studied with is being exposed to the music first of all because it changes your perspective and when you when it, when you have better understanding of the fundamentals behind this and it changes your perspective you treat the music with respect and you and it expands your listening because now you're not glued to the page now you're listening to what's going on around the page you might not truly understand all the aspects of it but now you're much more open to the experience well, that's a beautiful story. I'm happy to hear that. I mean, sounds like I did something right. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, 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 everything you say with you just said, I, I would agree with 100. percent I mean, uh, but I, I guess maybe just because I didn't know any better and I wasn't buying any books, and there, I don't know how many books were available on that kind of stuff in the 70s. If there were were there, I could I didn't find them or I didn't search them out. But I just liked listening to the music and singing along with the music and trying to understand the rhythms and trying to understand the feel. Like when I saw Memo play the, that kind of Brazilian lope on the snare drum, it was one of the most confusing things I'd ever seen to that point. Because, I mean, as, as advanced as Buddy Rich was, I could understand mm -hmm. it. You know, from a technical perspective, I could see it and, and watch it maybe on Johnny Carson late at night on a TV show or every once in a while or I saw him live and I would absorb what I was hearing and seeing. Uh, but the Brazilian thing, when he played that, I was just like, what is going on? It was it was so weird, weirdly fantastic that I, I, I was perplexed. I, I can still remember after he left the school, sitting down at the snare drum going, I have no idea how to play 16th notes on the snare drum the way that he just did that to get that sound. I was completely mystified because it was, it was all, it was all feel based. It wasn't technical based. I mean, because it was just right, left, right, left. Right. And, but the sound of it was so foreign. I was like, what? is that and i think i combined that with a, the one two punch was that and then seeing bernard purdy do a clinic and uh, up at the uh, the drum shop which dave hamilton ran before he had just drums and i remember seeing bernard purdy and going well okay he's not like doesn't have like buddy rich chops because i didn't know who he was i didn't know his, his i didn't know anything about him but i just remember when he started playing this groove it was like okay wow that's that's freaking awesome. What is that? That's freaking awesome. That is why, why is it so great? And then I'd be kind of fighting myself going, yeah, but his chops are kind of sloppy. Doesn't he, he doesn't play like Buddy Rich. Cause I was really into Buddy at that time. And if you couldn't play like that, I wasn't interested. So when I saw this again, it was confusing. And what it was is that um, both, both Memo and, and Bernard Purdy were playing stuff that was above my listening skill. I saw that there was something there and something that I wanted, but I didn't know how to achieve it. And it was kind of a feel thing. And then for me, the uh, 
the person who tied it all together for me was was Steve Gadd. When my 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 uh, when Lubar Palamucci played me the Friends record, um, uh, legendary Chick Corea record, that was a what I would just call a pivotal point for me. Listening to that record and just listening to the Steve Gadd's feel and groove. But at the same time, I still wasn't aware of the time feel and the groove as much. I was just digging everything he was playing. I was so, so hip. And, uh, you know, and Steve is, is predominantly why I got into the musician first, drummer second. He was the main impetus for that, for me, because everything he played basically sounded great no matter what musical context he was in. So, uh, uh, Back to listening to him, I played a whole bunch of Steve Gadd things, and I was going, it doesn't sound the same. I know I'm playing it note for note, but it doesn't sound the same. And then over time, you know, I kept searching. I mean, I guess I've been on that kind of search my whole life to to try and sound as good as guys who I considered had unbelievable groove and feel. You know, like your Bernard Purdy's, your Steve Jordan, Steve Ferroni. Steve Gadd, Richie Hayward, um, Jim Keltner. Now, all these guys in that kind of backbeat scenario. And the, the, the common thing was that they all kind of had a nice, they had a great time feel. And Steve, when I figured out that there was a difference between playing on top of the beat, down the center of the beat, and behind the beat, again, uh, like a, 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 a pivotal moment in learning something so complex and trying to understand it. And I think ever, ever since that moment, I've just been chasing time feel to try and make everything I do, no matter what the situation, just try and make it groove. Because that's what Steve Gadd does. Everything, everything he does, it, it, even if he's playing a ballad with James Taylor, you sit there and go, that's the most amazing thing I've ever heard in my life. Why can it be so great? It's just a little beat. I, uh, I remember seeing steve gadd play with james taylor years ago and the opening song that they played all they played was cymbals and it was a and it was a ballad and i was emotionally moved by how how powerful (laughs) it was when he did almost nothing but it's all about the perfection and the context of the song. And I think that's one of the things that that Steve Gadd does exceptionally well, is that he's not interested in the technical aspect of the rhythms. He just wants to make the song feel good. And I remember also a few years back, I saw Paul Simon play at Massey Hall. And and, it, and Paul always has you know an, an incredible band and Steve Gadd was playing and half the night, Steve got just play with brushes. So, so it tended to be really just kind of a laid back, real relaxed type of feel. And I'm, you know, sitting in the balcony at Massey Hall and I'm kind of air drumming along and tapping along and I'm hitting symbols that he's not. Yeah, yeah, and then right. I'm going through and I'm doing a fill and he's not playing that because he's waiting for the moment where that needs to be there. And it might be one note, but what he has is the discipline to wait until the music dictates that you need to play that. And he's also a master of space. And, and one of the things that I've learned, you know, over the years that I've been playing is that the best way to work on groove is to learn to value the space in between the notes, because too many times, you know, you got space between notes, you want to just fill it or 
it might be a ballad and you tend to get bored. And, and so I've, I've seen this a lot with students is that they're playing and they're like, oh, this is boring. And I'm, and, you know, and I'm, and some of my favorite things to play are ballads because I love the feel of a ballad and I love the space of a ballad. And I love the fact that you have to be very meticulous in terms of the placement of your notes, because if you play five notes when you should be playing three notes, it interrupts the groove and i just i love that sort of feel but i think it's a sense of musical maturity when people first start out regardless of your age there's always a level of youthful bravado that you want to go through <laughs> where you you want you, you're, you're you're inspired by you know the musicians that you love and and you tend to get gravitated towards the technical aspect of the music so you tend to to look to follow the flash elements and then over time you start to realize once you get beyond that that the thing that really made you appreciate those artists was the groove and the feel because music with the with technique without that feel is not exciting and and it's usually how that music made you feel it's not actually what they're playing in the first place yeah i would agree i mean and again, that comes back to your listening skill. How, what do you hear? You know, of course, it's perfectly normal for young young kids or even you know teenagers. I, I, actually, it could be any age where you get sucked into the flash. Mm -hmm. You know, because uh, people love to go to drum clinics no matter what the age, and but they always want to see someone solo at a drum festival or whatever. They want to see the chops because it's fun and it's exciting. And I love it as much as the next person, but definitely I would agree um, that again, that's what drew me to Steve Gadd. He would play phrases on the drums that just still, it was like, it was the first time I sort of thought about the concept of grooving a drum solo, mm -hmm. as opposed to it being a separate technical entity. It was a solo that had a groove behind it because he, he would just play these big kind of groovy things you just go oh man i feel that like i feel like he's kicking me in the gut you know and i've and i've been very fortunate to be standing behind him a couple of times at clinics where it's really noticeable when you sit behind him just like oh dear god listen to that that is unreal what he's what he's playing is is affecting my physicality my my, my molecular molecular structure if my dna is being vibrated by what is happening on the drums and that's a fascinating uh thing but i remember that one time when he was a humber doing that and i was there me and gord sheared were just standing there and gord went oh man it feels like he's kicking me in the gut and i was like oh my god yeah and i said to the students who were right behind him sitting there go said guys are you hearing that and they're like yeah man oh yeah it's awesome and i was like no 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 you should be buckled over in pain kind of like it's hurting you because it's so good and they weren't reacting in the same way that gord and i were we were hearing something or we were just hearing the difference somehow uh of the way it felt as opposed to by going oh it's a famous drummer it's really cool and it's exciting and i like this the the younger students reaction was just I don't know if you would call it like a surface thing, like the tip of the iceberg, where Gordon and I were some were feeling like the roots of what was happening. It was like, oh my God, this is so heavy. What the pocket he's playing is killing me. Like it was a phys I had a physical reaction to it, a good one, but uh, the students 
were just they had an excited reaction. You know, it was it was a, it was an interesting moment, and I remember I recollect that moment because it was so unusual because their reaction was not the same as myself and Gord's. One of the things that I know I've struggled with over the years through my my lessons is getting away from the book knowledge aspect and embracing the the freedom that you have of actually getting to play the music i've i've done gigs before where i'm really well prepared i've got the chart done i've learned the groove and you go there and you're playing everything technically correctly but it just doesn't feel right and then you feel like you you're kind of struggling just waiting for it to done and there's and there's no joy in that and one of my, one of my favorite drummers to watch is Brian Blade and what i love about Brian's playing is that he is always exceptionally well prepared but he doesn't play anything without intention that's all based on the experience he's getting from the other people on the stage and i remember going to see wayne shorter at kerner hall i think the last time that he, he came through and i and i always buy the cheap seats so i'm on the first balcony behind the stage because then you get the bird's eye view of the band and i remember watching the stage going okay there's wayne shorter you know legendary um jazz composer and saxo player who unfortunately we ju we just lost recently and then you have john patitucci who's like world-class bass player danilo perez on piano also world-class and brian blade sitting there and i remember thinking i'm staring at the charts that they have they have music charts they don't need them but they've got charts and they're standing there and they're not playing anything they're just looking at each other and then danilo perez would start playing something on the piano that's not related to the chart he just starts playing something and then <laughs> and then brian's responding and then there's this moment of just listening and embracing and catching a vibe and then once they kind of get into the thing that they're experiencing they play the song because it's not about mm. just count it off and kind of do the song and it was this magical experience of these masters but yet are just inspired by just embracing the moment. And sometimes things don't go the way that you intend them to, but it was just so joyful and so powerful and so dynamic. And, and I find that's the type of things that impress me. I love the technical aspect of musicianship, but I want it to feel good. And I wanna walk away going, yes, that was an amazing experience because of how powerful just that experience is. And you, you don't get that on a video, you get that, by actually being in the room and experiencing that energy. Yeah. Well, Wayne Shorter, I mean, <laughs> what can be said that hasn't already been said? I mean, he is a unique, uniquely spiritual individual who has had who had a, a monstrous career in numerous bands, you know, from the the, the the Miles Davis days and 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 to the Weather Report days, which were very very different, and then into a solo band uh, project with these guys, that very very uh, amazing all star band. I mean, he was just kind of like a real kind of spiritual mentor to those 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 players, and they all talk to him, talk about him with such reverence and awe. You know, but he, he and I've talked to people who have worked with him or played with him and and even talking to Danilo about him and, you know, just hilarious stories about some of the funny th comments he would make that were not musically related, but they were just more descriptive. Mm -hmm. 
that really just kind of went, oh, that's what you want. That's what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Play more waterfalls in your solo. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, um, my friend, uh, David Goldblatt, piano player who lives in, in Seattle, or is he Portland? No, he's out on the West Coast. But uh, he went, he was playing with uh, Gino Vanelli at a, a festival in Europe. And Wayne and Herbie had a duet and Herbie missed the flight. So Wayne had no one to play with. It was just the two of them. And Wayne had listened to David play uh, uh, on this, his sound check. And he sent his, his road manager over and said, hi, I'm with uh, Wayne Shorter, Herbie Hancock. Herbie didn't make the flight. Her, uh, Wayne was listening to you and he was just wondering if you wanted to finger paint with him. And my buddy David went, I would love to finger paint with Wayne Shorter, which I imagine was the correct answer yes. as opposed to, I'm sorry, what? Play, you want me to finger paint? What do you mean? You're the wrong guy. You know what I mean? It was so, so, so childlike in, in its innocence of what he was asking. And yet, if you met that childlike innocence with the wrong answer, then Wayne would know you're not the right person to do the gig. And then David said they went to the gig. They didn't talk about anything. They just went and improvised like 90 minutes mm -hmm. and said he said he went into some tunes that I knew, thankfully. But there was a lot of creative stuff just happening, you know. But now to go back to Brian, Brian Blade, um, I remember the first time I saw him. I saw him play at the Beaches Jazz Festival with Dale Grant, piano player. And I remember Kieran Overs, the local bass player, saying to me, Mark, you have to check this drum out. You're going to die. I was like, oh, okay, great. Okay, great. And I sat at the side stage watching him. And within like 10 seconds, I was like, who? Who is this guy? This is before anyone even knew who he was. I said, oh, my God. Because he had, he was, you know, coming from Louisiana, Louisiana, he had that whole New Orleans kind of jazzy, greasy, loosey-goosey thing going on. I was like, whoa, oh my God. And it was so intense. Even when he was playing like a slow swing tune on the hi-hat, I was going, oh my God, I'm dying. Again, that kind of same reaction I had with Gad. It was just like, oh, this is so intense. It's physically, I'm, I'm being exhausted here by absorbing this sound and everything that's coming with it. And I talked to him. And then years later, I got to, for the um, Pan America Pan Am Games when they were in Toronto a few years ago, I rehearsed Danilo's big band with him. And then uh, Patitucci and, and, and Brian came in. And the interesting thing was for me, I got to play percussion and sit right behind Brian. And when he was playing the chart and I was watching him going, man, he's not really reading the chart here. He's kind of missing some shots, you know. And then Danilo went, uh, Brian, don't worry about the chart. And I'm thinking, man, it's a big band. There's lots of stops and starts. What, what do you mean? You know, don't look at the chart. You got to look at the chart. He said, Brian, just play, man. Just play. And then it just proceeded to sound like the most brilliant thing I'd ever heard in my life. And I was like, what is happening here? Again, another interesting fact about just getting away from the page. And just he just relied on his ears to play this really complicated big band material like it was nothing. He just just went right through it. And even if there was a break and he played through it, it still sounded great. It didn't, it, nothing he did made it sound bad. It was ama an amazing sort of, again, lesson for me to watch someone just solely rely on the information they were hearing through their ears and translating that information out into their drum kit in a real emotional, 
uh, and physical combination that was just brilliant. It was just all I'm going to listen and react. It was a conversation with a big band and the drum set player. It was it was magnificent. Well, the, the first time I saw Brian play was with Daniel Anwa and Br- right, Brian yeah. was the backup band. So it was Daniel Anwa and Brian Blade and you, and everyone's thinking, well that's kind of weird because it's just a drummer and then you realize no it it makes perfect sense. And, and it was just because it, it was spiritual and it had this intense groove and there was just all this amazing stuff going on. And I was fortunate. Yeah. I, I got to see Brian play at the jazz room in Waterloo uh, last year. And I remember walking up to, it was with the, it was, it was with the Fraser Hollands quartet. Yeah, and, I remember. and I remember walking up to Fraser during the break and, you know, saying how, how much I loved the show and how weird it was for me being a drummer to be that close to Brian Blade when he's literally walking past my table, but I don't want to bug him because, you know, sometimes you want to make sure that you're respectful. Yeah. And then I said, but I just, I would love the chance to say hello. And he said to me, do it like just walk up to him because he will make time for you and you will regret it if you don't and he was one of the kindest sweetest gentlemen i've ever met and he was just so humbled that i was so familiar with his career and i'd seen him so many times and and it was just this amazing experience to get you know five minutes just to talk to you know one of these masters and it, it enlightens you and it makes you understand them even more now as a student, I'm often gravitate towards books. I love drum books. I like the formality of that. It's it's a way that I learn well. But I have made a point now of often studying with the people that wrote the books in the first place. Because I find if you buy a book, you get your own interpretation of it. If you study with the person that wrote the book, you get the intention that the words don't actually tell you. And sometimes it takes something that doesn't seem that deep and turns it into a much deeper experience. And you start to actually apply the things the way that the author intended them to to be. Now, you talked about being a student at Humber later on from 2005 to 2021, you were sort of the department head at Humber. So you were dealing with like, you know, hundreds of the next generation of drummers. What are some of the things looking back that you noticed in terms of people just kind of coming into the program that were some of the biggest challenges and things that they needed to overcome in order to learn? And what were some of the biggest lessons that you would instill in your students? Right out of the gate in the very first class, I would I would make us uh, create a class list of all the things that you I, I tried to get the musician first thing established right off the out of the gate and i would say okay let's make a list hands up start throwing out some ideas um what do you think are the necessities of a good musician who plays the drums i I tried to word it in such a way that they would go oh why didn't he just say drummer i wanted them to be focused on the point that i was making sure that they understood that they were musicians their instrument was the drums but they were musicians first and that if they respect the music and play for the music, usually good things will happen. I tried to, I tried right out of the gate to establish that concept because 
you know, there's a lot of jo- jokes about drummers being non-musicians. And, and to be quite honest, I'm kind of tired of them. I'm not, I don't think they're funny anymore. And so when someone says something like that to me, it kind of irks me because it's like, man, it's 2023. Th- that, those jokes are from last century, really. Mm-hmm. Because are you going to, you know, are you going to make fun of Steve Gadd or Brian Blade and say they're not musicians? <laughs> no one would ever say that. So I tried to do that and we would make a list. And then I would categorize the list as list as I was writing it on the board. So when they'd say, you know, oh, chops, technique, I would put it over here. And, you know, and then if I wasn't getting what I was looking for, I said, I'm looking for the big three. And they'd be like, oh, what are we missing? Oh, soloing, uh, good gear, um, personality, um, individuality, create, cre- creativity. I'm going, these are all great, great. I'm looking for the big three. In fact, you gotta, we got to find number one. And and then eventually someone will go listening, you know, with a question mark. I say, bingo, we have a winner. You get the prize, listening. And and I would also ask them when they threw out a uh, uh, an, uh, a suggestion, why? I you can't just throw something out. You got to back it up. Why do you think that's important? And then that go, okay, good. I I agree with that. All right, I'll write that down. Or I'd go. Maybe, maybe not. I'll keep it over here, you know. But when someone said listening, I said, why? You know, and I get to, I get, I get, try and get them all actively involved to give me why they thought listening was was important. Because I said, that's what I'm putting at the very top of the list. I guarantee you, if you are a poor listener as a musician, you will fail at what you're required to do on the bandstand. If you, can, if you don't listen to other musicians, or even in life, it's going to cause you trouble, going to cause you problems. And I wanted to establish that as a fundamental goal of something they should be looking at. The next thing was, was playing with, with good time. And then I, I made sure that they understood time feel, that time feel was not the same as good time. Good time relates to tempo. Time feel is the relationship to that pulse. Where where do you feel the beat? Where do you perceive the beat in relation to that pulse? Are you ahead? Are you down the middle? Or are you behind? It's it's like kind of a really super advanced concept. So I wanted to establish these things and talk about these terms because you know they were talked about in sort of secrecy when I was a student. Time feel, you know, what's that? I remember when I asked him one guy, time feel, what, what, what does that mean? And the guy said, man, if you have to ask, you know, and walked away. I was like, oh, man, I feel bad now. I feel worse. And I still don't know what they meant. You know, so I wanted to try and 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 discuss that, those elements of how important and how crucial they are to music and sort of get them away from the uh, Olympic sport <coughs> that we see on social media that has become drumming, uh, because that's not it's not my thing. And I don't think it's a musical thing. It's it's its own thing. Uh, and there's a lot of it and a lot of stuff that's really impressive. But it's it's like a, you know, a, a, it's like a circus act. It's like, great. I'm, I'm curious to watch it. But do I want to buy it? No, I want to listen to uh, I'll listen to. Oh, Nate Smith. Yeah, that's funky. <laughs> you know, I want it. I want more of that. So for me, I just tried to prioritize the importance of groove and time feel, you know, and then I then I then I got into proper technique. But for, for me, proper technique was like down after those things, those elements. I wanted to make sure that those elements were the priority of for them to, to chase. So 
uh, you know, and then once we got into it, I did delve into techniques, a lot of hand technique, because that's one thing I saw a lot of problems with, especially with young kids who might have been self-taught, um, not rebounding the stick, just um, not maximizing, not maximizing their 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 movement properly. You know, a lot of tension, a lot of stiffness, and you know things that they just weren't aware of, maybe because you know you have a lot of. A lot of young kids come in and they're the hotshot in high school, but then they come to Humber and they're not the only ones who was really good. It was kind of a, an eye-opener for them. So we also had to deal with some bruised egos and, and nerves. I feel that nerves in the classroom, because of the nature of the, the environment, a whole room full of drummers and me, and sometimes Larnell or sometimes DeLong, would be in the classroom at the same time, you know, which I love because I love putting a little bit of pressure on them. you know, but. Uh, the nerve thing for me was probably the single most difficult uh, issue that I come, came across and tried to rectify. And I don't think I ever successfully figured out a way to combat the nerves because it was, it was so self-inflicted by each student on themselves that it was really hard to get inside their heads to try and release them from the fear of, of screwing off screwing up you know even if i even if i told them this is after a few years i figured out hey this is a safe place to fail you can come up here and sound like shit you can fall apart and it can be a disaster and it doesn't affect your career it's much more severe if that happens on a gig or in a rehearsal somewhere where people are hiring you but here in this classroom it's fine to fail and maybe sometimes you will learn from your failures things that you would never learn from your successes. I tried, you know, I tried to really get inside their heads, you know, and, uh, but that, that was for me, I think the most difficult obstacle to overcome uh, a, a person getting up and playing in front of 18 to 25 drummers and not being nervous and, and, you know, and, and trying to find the joy and still playing because they, that was one of the things to go right out the window. They're not happy. They, that, that was the last place in the world they wanted to be all of a sudden. One of the things that I've often told some of my students who are often, you know, younger and just starting out um, when I ask them to play is play me your favorite thing. And then they always want me to tell them what to play. And so what I, what I, what I started doing was when you come home from school and you go down to your room where the drums are, there's something that you always play. And it doesn't matter what it is, but there's something that you always play because it brings you joy because there's nobody watching. And it's all about the experience and that connection that you have with the instrument. That's what I want to hear you play. I want to, I want to hear you play your thing regardless of what it is, because that's the thing that, that makes you happy. And I find a lot of times with students, they don't, they know what they want to achieve, but they don't know how to ask what it is that they want to learn. Like I, you know, they'll come in and they'll say, okay, you know, I want to learn a song. Okay. What song do you want to learn? I don't know. <laughs> Who's your favorite drummer? I don't know. You know, and this can be like little kids. It, it can be things. And so I end up picking songs that they've never heard of that might be like standards just so that they can play something. And then what happens is they'll have a chart but they're so glued to the chart and they never listen to the song in the first place. So in order to experience it, you actually have to be exposed to the music. I had a student once and he didn't want to learn how to read, which was fine. But every week he came in 
and he had two or three songs that he wanted to learn because he was jamming them with his friends. And so he kind of knew the beats. He's like, but for some reason it doesn't feel right. And I loved that because we could go through and we can analyze what he was doing to make it so that it felt right. And it was usually dynamics. You're playing it too loud or your bass drum is too tentative. So the, the hands are fine. Hit your bass drum harder. I had another student and he was always very technical, had some great grooves and he had a good sense of musicality. And so even from when, I, when he was young, once a month, he had to play in the worship band at church, which was great because he, he grew up in an environment where he understood song forms and, and the things that were important. And but when he would come to lessons, he would always want to play really complicated things. And so he'd play the stuff that would be quite impressive. And I would say to him, great, I want you to do it again but you can hit one bass drum. <laughs> so, now, so, so the hands are fine, Sneaky. but you can, you can hit one bass drum. So now you have to determine where Value. in that one bar beat where you can play that bass drum. Yeah. And I don't care where it is as long as you only hit one. And so what I started to do is it was a way for me to kind of still allow him to explore the technical things that made him happy, but I was able to fine tune some things to make him um, understand the context of the music a little bit more, or he would play something and, you know, at a church and say, okay, well, this is, you know, it's kind of boring because it's a, it's a ballad. And I'm like, well, then don't be boring, you know, find something in that, that actually makes you smile. So change your part, like don't completely change the whole thing, but, you know, do something different, you know, or I would just say, you know, if there's a lot of space humming 16th notes in your head, and then suddenly what happens is you now start to feel the space in between, and it makes you pay more attention to that. And I, I remember another lesson I had with you, I said, I wanted to work on funk grooves. And the first thing you did was that you said, okay, great. You threw on uh, audio track that I never heard before. You said, sit down behind my drums. You don't get to hear it in advance but I will give you the courtesy of telling you that there's a pickup because it doesn't start on one and we're going to record you <laughs> go. And then that's an intimidating situation, but at the same time too, for people that kind of want to do session work and studio work, that's the type of environment and the type of pressure that you're going to come into. And then I did it. And I remember you said that I actually did a good job considering I never heard things, but then you put it through the microscope and you start analyzing the feel going, this is dead on. This is great. You're behind here. You're ahead here. All of that's okay, but you have to choose one and you have to be consistent. You can't start switching around. So what I've started doing now over the last few years is that I have a bunch of play alongs and I will just, put them into Logic Pro on my computer. I don't rehearse them. I don't even listen to them in advance. I just take the chart and I record it and I listen back to it. And then I might record it again a couple of days later, but I'm not trying to get a perfect experience. What I'm trying to get is an eye-opening experience where I can look at, at different elements of my playing and really start to fine tune things. And it's made an unbelievable difference in terms of my value doing studio work because now I am more aware of things because listening back always feels different than what it felt like when you're actually playing the drums. Absolutely. And, and so I, I think it's important to, to always do that. I remember Benny Greb, you know, the renowned uh, instructor from Germany once said that in order to be a better musician, you have to 
record yourself you have to listen back to the entire thing and before you find anything negative you have to find three positive things in it that you did well because if you always get faced with the negative you don't start to look at the things that you've actually accomplished and it's all about growing it doesn't have to be perfect you just want to be better than the last time you did that and it really comes down to just awareness and listening and adjusting those dynamic elements yeah, it's a funny it's a funny thing that where we 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 jump to the negative instinctively first it's a weird sort of human trait i don't know why that is i've never really i guess i've never researched it but it's a weird thing I, i'm in my opinion i think it comes from a deep-rooted love for what we do that it would stab us in the heart if people didn't like it so we overcompensate when we listen to it go oh this is not good enough this is terrible oh god i rushed that fill oh no this is hard oh man you know my oh my backbeat you know and we point these things out to make people i don't know sort of just go yes i recognize that there's flaws in my and you know we we say it before anybody has a chance to notice it but i you know i used to start getting on my students for that as well because they would play something oh man that would that sucked i said you know bef before you say that why don't you let me say something to you first? Because I was actually going to say, I really thought that was good. And then they'll be like, oh, really? And then their whole thing changes. Their whole their whole persona changes. Oh, you liked it? What did you like? Well, I said, well, I thought the way you came in was really strong and forceful. You nailed that shot. It was super tight. The time was great. I liked all the fills. I thought I loved the way you you built your orchestrated your parts around the kit for the the song, the solo. Maybe a bit of problems, but you know. But I would always say there's lots of stuff that I like, and they're thinking all they focus on is is all the mistakes or or all the things that they don't like. And to be honest, I'm as guilty of that as anybody. And I've read lots of modern drummer interviews where famous drummers, Jeff Percaro, legendary one who hated listening back to himself. It's a kind of a funny trait and it's a drag because I wish we could just be more positive without it being egotistical somehow. Well, you know? along that lines, as I mentioned at the beginning, you put out an educational DVD called Musician First, Drummer Second, which was brilliant and and I find it incredibly inspiring but I know from your perspective because I've heard you talk about this before it was a horrible experience to do because you were so self-critical about it yeah. that um you you I wasn't going to put it out you, you I wasn't going to put it out yeah, you could you, you couldn't <laughs> see past the things that you that were just not the way that you had hoped that they would turn out and so we fall into these self-critical traps that sometimes you need someone else's perception or perspective to come along to allow you to change this and i think i heard a story once that you had given it to a student who I did, who yeah. had taken it home watched the whole entire thing and then raved about it when you were ready to basically just trash the whole thing despite the fact you yeah. spent thousands of dollars to put this together yeah it was uh yeah i think it cost me about twenty eight thousand dollars out of my own pocket to make it's an expensive endeavor uh and the student was juan carlos medrano a student of mine from colombia percussion player who also learned how to play drums and uh, a great great human being i love the guy he's beautiful great player great musician and i gave it to him i said just 
check, tell me what you really think. And I want you to be as brutally honest as I would be for you in this, in the same situation. And he came back and says, you know, it's like, Mark, it's one of the greatest things I've ever seen. I was like, are you sure? Because I don't think I can put it out. I don't think it's good enough. I don't think it's any good. I think people are going to be bored with this. I just don't, I don't think it's any good, you know, because I suppose it's like an actor when they watch themselves on camera, you just see your face up so many times. You just go, this is, I'm, I've, I never want to see this movie ever again because, you know, it's like making a record. By the time you put it out, you never want to hear it again because you've listened to it a thousand times and analyzed everything to death. Because again, we're, we want to put out the best representation of ourselves, an almost impossible version of what we perceive to be good because we put all our favorite musicians on pedestals and we want to be categorizing that same, that's that same group of, of people. You want it to be on their level uh, of, of, of uh, how good it is. So you think, uh, no, I'm not there. Forget it. I'm not going to pack it in. My wife thought I, I had lost my mind. She says, Oh my God, you're crazy. I'm sure just put it out. I'm sure people will like it. And then when I put it out, I was white knuckling it going, oh man, I'm just waiting for all the, the negative reviews. And you know, I never got one negative review. Everybody liked it. And then, you know, if I look back, I think, I think about what Joni Mitchell said about her records, which I thought was a beautiful, a beautiful way to describe it. She says, putting out a new record is like sending your, 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 your kid to school, but you know, they're going to get beat up. You know, and I thought, yeah, that's kind of what we do. It's, Again, but I think that I think that fear comes from a deep-rooted place of love. We love what we do, and we just want to put something out that's like this is our original stamp. This is who I am. This is my songs. I've wrote, written these songs, and you just—it's almost like you want to be accepted, and you want people to like it, and you don't want people to hate it. And we live in this this cruel world of social media where people are quick to just criticize and hate things. You know, when I did my first Drumio thing. I mean, I was reading down the comments going, hey, this is good. People are digging it. And then one person just was hating it. I was like, oh, wow. And I couldn't get by it. I was like, man, this one guy hates what I did. He's like, damn, man, okay. And it didn't matter that there'd been maybe 100 people who liked it. That one person just kind of rankled me, you know. And then, I mean, everybody else on, I didn't have to do anything because everybody else sorted them out for me. But it's a funny thing. I try not to read the re the comments anymore because uh, the negative ones are really disruptive to kind of a healthy living space. <laughs> I remember years ago watching a live video of Leonard Cohen that was on YouTube and it was him doing Hallelujah, which was just beautiful and a brilliant band. And there was just this amazing intensity and stuff too. Then you're reading the comments and one of the comments was, who is this old guy slaughtering the most beautiful song ever written? Oh. It's, am <laughs> it's, it's amazing that they let people like that on stage. It's like, uh, he's ruining this song. They said, oh, it's an embarrassment. And then the next comment was, Show some respect. Leonard Cohen is a genius. He wrote the damn song in the first place. <laughs> and, you know, and you just have to be respectful because without Leonard Cohen writing the song, regardless of your tastes, and I happen to be a big fan, the song that many people considered to be one of the most beautiful songs ever written wouldn't exist if Leonard Cohen didn't write it. Mm -hmm. And so it's all kind of about, about perspectives. What speaks to one doesn't speak to someone else. But that's the beauty of art and the creative process. Yeah. 
But social media has given everybody a voice to slag it and get their negative feelings off, off their chest. I remember a whole bunch of young drummers were slagging Vinny online for this thing because someone had taken all his fills from the Joan Rivers show and, and, and put them all together. So it was like, you know, like 50 shows where he'd take these drum breaks and the students were just making fun of it. And I was thinking, oh my God, this is one of the greatest drummers ever. And people are just like slagging him. And then I heard, I remember one student really, really, really got me, got me into the, got me into the, the angry mode. He said, yeah, man, Steve Gadd, is he like a one trick pony or what? And I was furious going, oh my God, it's so disrespectful and ignorant, <laughs> right? The person just did not know, you know, but that, that's, that's kind of the world we're in right now. We're in this kind of uh, ugly environment where we're, we've got combat between good and bad on social media. Well, and because we live in a time where social media is is just around us all the time and we're going to have these things, one of the things that happens a lot, particularly through the whole pandemic element, is that the trend now is to post cover videos. Mm -hmm. I am very respectful of the performance and the talent that people have put into these, and I think it's exceptionally well done. As a viewer, if I want to see someone play drums to a song, I'm going to go back to the original artist because that's their voice. And what I want to see is I want people to, to love the music that they love and to promote and do that, but do your own thing because that's, Always. that's what I want to see. Now you've done a bunch of cover videos as well too, but you you've you've gone through you've done them in a way where you've done played all the instruments you've sang all the parts you made it your own you interpreted music that you love in a way that brings you joy and they're exceptionally well done so i i watch those and i love the passion and the creativity behind them because it's your tip of the hat to the music that inspires you but you're not copying the original artist because you're using your own creativity. And I know you're really big on the creative aspect. I'm someone that has always kind of questioned my ability in order to write music. I don't know why it's just, it's one of those things that I think I told myself 30 years ago when I was finished college that um, I wasn't a writer. So I would just play on other people's things. And then I realized that's just silly. So everyone has a voice, everyone has an outlet and you have to just, jump in and see where this takes you. And I remember having a conversation with Larnell Lewis about this because he had talked in a, in a clinic once and he said, you know, as a drummer, he's considered to be sort of, you know, the top of his game. One of the, one of the you know, most respected sort of contemporary drummers out there, but he's also a composer. And he said, one of the struggles that he had as a composer is that I'm writing music and I'm learning how to write music and I'm doing the best that I can. But in my head, the problem is I feel like I have to be able to be a composer at the same level that people perceive me to be a drummer. What they don't understand is I've been a drummer since I was like a, uh, like a child <laughs> and I've got, you know, 30 plus years of, of doing this and I've been a composer for a couple of years and I just haven't put the same time in, but we tend to judge ourselves on sometimes other people's perceptions or even our own perceptions that everything we do has to be good. 
and we just have to just jump in and learn from the process. Now you are a songwriter and a composer, which is one of the things that I think factors into the fact that you're one of the most musical drummers in, in the, in the country. So where, where did your um, interest in writing come and what is your process being a drummer because you're not always coming from a background where you're an accomplished melodic instrumentalist so sometimes that can be perceived as a bit of a challenge but you've written some brilliant compositions and you've put out some amazing records so what's your process in your songwriting well first of all thank you for that it's always nice to hear that people like your tunes um i love what larnell said i mean that is a very very true statement about the uh, uh, equality of your writing component versus your playing component i'm in the same bag i've been playing drums now for 48 years 42 of them as a professional but writing music Maybe, you know, actually, well, I haven't done the math on that one, but maybe 30 years, but in spurts, you know. But for me, I can trace it back, I think, to a couple of things. A, I love to sing. So when I would play drums, I would learn tunes because I was learning the melody and the lyrics to a tune to sing it if I was playing. Um, um, So I think by learning the melody, it brought me more in touch with a melodic concept while playing the drums. So singing definitely helped me. Also, as I mentioned earlier, I played saxophone. I played a harmonic instrument in junior high school for three years in the concert band and for three years in high school. So that's six years of saxophone. I mean, I would suck at it now because I haven't done it in so long. But the, the playing the harmonic instrument, uh, learn, I, I learned about pitch. I learned about intervals. I uh, learned about dynamics. It helped me with my reading, for sure. Uh, I learned about articulation. I learned about breathing. A lot of things that weren't so sort of common in on the drum set. So I was kind of having a harmonic lesson while simultaneously playing stage band and drumming lessons. And I think, luckily, the two of them just kind of merged into one kind of concept. Now, songwriting and things... Um, um, I think I think when I got to Humber is maybe when I started writing uh, my first kind of instrumental music uh, because it was a requirement of, of some of the classes. You had to write in theory class. You had to do this kind of, you had to do this song in this style of this. And so I started doing things. But then when I left school, I, I, I stopped for quite some time. I never, I was just playing. I was focusing on that. And I think uh, <clears throat> I got interested in, uh, my first record was in, I think, 1989. Uh, I put out a cassette called Take the Night, which was like eight pop tunes. Because my friend and I, Anthony Vanderberg, we started somehow writing songs together because he was he was a writer. He was signed to Warner Chapel. He says, Mark, you want to write some tunes? You know, and I said, yeah, okay. I don't really play anything, but I knew I had some valid ideas. And so I was helpful lyrically not so much a little bit but really more on just kind of humming melodies through stuff and then i think by the time we got to you know i'd I'd done a couple of records because i you know i bought myself a little porta studio back in the day and got a little keyboard and even though i can't really play keyboard i could you know record a core you know i could my writing is all based on kind of sounds I love the sound of this chord change. And as I learned more about the piano and I learned more about harmony and theory, um, 
I'm, I'm able to do things a little bit quicker now, but when I was starting off, it would just be kind of thumbs on the piano and, and playing a bass note. A lot of drummer things, we'd have the root change over the same chord or, uh, you know, a lot of slash chords, <clears throat> things like that. But it was all sound-based, and then all my melodies were sung, which, unbeknownst to me, helped me record, uh, uh, create melodies that were playable by horn players because I had to breathe. Which means that they can, if I can breathe doing it, they can breathe rather than just writing it from a theoretical thing and just writing notes after note and, and for days and days, 16th notes. It's like, where do we breathe? So I think the singing proponent helped me with that. N- nowadays, once I started getting into uh, you know, the Jazz Exile stuff, I had the band in mind and I knew who I was writing for, which helped. But my process basically is um, I'd be walking the dog or walking out for a walk and if i came up with a rhythmic idea either at the kit or walking i just get my phone out and sing it into my phone because ultimately as 15 minutes would go by i'd forgotten the idea and if i tried to remember it, it's like good luck those ideas they come to you from wherever they pop into your head and then you gotta gotta get them down on paper or or playing them so i'd record them into my phone and then uh, uh i'd run home and i can I can, I, sometimes all I need is one idea. Uh, and I think maybe sometimes people are afraid to write a song because they think, oh, I need a hundred ideas for the song. No, you just need one idea. You need a starting point. And I would get that starting point. And once I had something, a rhythm or, or something that sounded pleasant to my ear, um, I would just uh, continue and go, let me find another chord now. I've got a first chord. I really like this chord. Or someone showed me a voicing on piano. I said, "Oh, I love that. I could, Mike. I can write a whole. I can use that to start a whole song. One idea, and I would just play the chord, and then I would maybe move that, move that same voicing up a minor third or down a semitone or whatever. I would just move it around on the piano and look for things that kind of worked, and I'd record them into my computer, and then, um, and then you know, because I, I I got a. a as I said, a Porta Studio, and then I got uh, 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 what was it? Uh, Atari, the Atari N1040 ST. Started with that. Started writing on that, getting the computer into that, and then that went to Notator Logic, which became Logic Audio, which is now Logic Pro. So I kind of grew into the the technology as it was happening, which was helpful as well, um, because sometimes the technology technology can be daunting to get a whole studio together to write the songs. Or you could just do it the easy way and buy a guitar. <laughs> Learn how to play guitar. That's probably a much easier way. But for me, I would just hear something. It could be a bass note. It could be a bass pattern. It could be a harmonic progression on keyboards. It could be a melodic thing that I'm singing. It could be a rhythm on the drums. So the, all, all the songs come from different uh, uh, places. So if you were to ask me, this song, how did this come up? Oh, I, I sung that bass that part when I was sitting on the drums. I was just playing something in five, and I this bass part came to me and I sang it into my phone. This song came from, oh, I got this one voicing, you know, so it all comes from different places. And sometimes I hear a tune and I go, oh, I want to write a tune like that. Or I hear a tune and I start singing a different melody over the tune. So that's kind of my process for writing. (laughs) With the videos and stuff where I'm doing cover tunes, I do want to get back to that point you made about creativity. I am a big proponent of creativity. It was something I really tried to push on my students. And I know what you were saying earlier about, you know, the students going, well, what do you want me to play? I said, anything you want. Yeah, but tell, like what? Can I do this? Yes. Well, is it okay if I do this? Absolutely. 
And it would take 10 minutes for them to do something without having to be told what was acceptable. I said, don't worry about anything. There are no rules. Play anything. As long as you just be creative. And it was, I was always sort of struck that it took so long to get someone to be creative. Where I think when I was that age, it'd be like, do something creative. Okay. <laughs> I've been blitzing around the drum kit. Sure, I'm, I'm, I'm dying to do that. But uh, the creativity thing, yeah, I mean, just because you think you can't do it doesn't mean you can't. I mean, right? So I would, I would, I would, uh, I would uh, just sit at the piano or, you know, or whatever and just try and be creative. But when I was doing the, uh, the videos and stuff, I, ha I definitely did not want to play a cover tune and do it the exact same way. Because as you said, why? The original is going to be better if I cover a sting tune. Sting sounds awesome on it, and so does Stuart Copeland or, or, or Vinny or Omar Hakim or Manu Kache. Whoever's playing it sounds amazing. So I want to do it in the, I, I want to do something in the spirit of the song <clears throat> that hopefully sounds good, but I'm going to put my, my spin on it because nobody wants you. I don't think anybody wants you to be a cover drummer. Unless you're in a cover band where you're playing tunes note for note. But for me, that, 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 that would not interest me. That would be boring. It's like, okay, I want to play this tune in the spirit of the meters with the same vibe as Zigaboo, but I don't want to play Zigaboo's drum grooves note for note. I'm going to find out like some key parts so it sounds the same, but maybe I want to change it up and do something different. You know, you uh, I mean... There are some things where I would copy, like if I'm playing Talking Loud and Saying Nothing by James Brown with Jabo Starks, Jabo's drum groove is, is, the, is the song. And I think I'm not going to stray from that. So there are moments where I'm playing something where I will keep it, you know, respectful to the thing. But if I have a moment where I can and I think I can be creative without being disrespectful to the song, I'm definitely going to try something to put my own thing on it. You know, like when I, when I played with Gino... Gino Vanelli, um, he just wanted me to play the songs. He didn't ask for me to play anything note for note for what Graham Lear or Casey Shirell or Vinnie or Garibaldi or, or, or Mark Craney. He didn't ask me ever to play what those guys played on the records. He just, he wanted me to do my thing, but play the songs well. You know, for him, mm -hmm. it was like, if you're doing something I don't like, I will be sure to tell you. I said, okay. So I kind of had free reign to do my thing and interpret the songs as I saw fit, because if he hired me, he must have saw something in in what I did to bring to his music. And plus, if I play something that's new, it makes the songs that he's been singing for 50 years fresh, right? You know, why would you want someone to come in and just play it like the record? Because he's done that already. He's also looking for some creativity from me as well. So if I could be creative and the, the artist wants me to be creative, it's like a, the best of both worlds because they're going, yeah, I know I've been singing this song for 20 years. Uh, can you, let's, let's do something different because I, you know, it's, it's really hard to do the song the same way. I want to, I want to do something different with it. And I was like, yeah, man, creativity. That's, that's a beautiful thing. And I'm all for that. Well, in those situations, your role is to be creative but your role is to be creative in a way that invokes the same reaction from the audience that they had the first time I heard the song. They don't know if you're playing it note for note or not. And if the people that are paying attention like that are not really listening to the song, they're only listening to the part. Yeah. 
And I remember you and I had a conversation once about how music is a puzzle. And yes, there are certain situations where you can change your parts and you have some flexibility. But sometimes if you change your part, it no longer fits into the puzzle that all the other parts are doing. Yeah. I think we use an example of James Brown song. Yeah. If you change the guitar rhythm, yeah. it no longer locks in with the bass, with the drums. And yes, all the parts are simple, but collectively, when those pieces fit together, it's exciting and it grooves. You change one element and now it doesn't feel right. So in those contexts, you have to just respect the parts yeah. and in other contexts and other parts of the show, you will have the flexibility where you can kind of create and sort of customize them on your own. Absolutely. I'm not saying to go in and just go, I'm going to do my thing no matter what. I mean, if you were playing with James Brown, I imagine it was very specific to play those classic things, you know, or you'd be fined. You would be fined. Exactly. <laughs> but if you're in a, if you're in a cover band and you're kind of copying a thing and yeah, then you're, I guess you're expected to play something like that. If you're going to play like 50 ways to leave your lover or in the air tonight, you got to go boom, 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 boom. If you don't do that, everybody's going to go, what the hell? Yeah. You, you suck. <laughs> you got to do it. Right. And, and that's part of the song. Just like 50 ways that groove, you can't play that song unless someone writes a, a new arrangement of it and goes, I'm going to do this. Like I heard this record today um, with Kurt Elling, Charlie Hunter and Nate Smith. And I was like, I saw the song titled Boogie Down. I went, Boogie Down? Is that the Al Jarreau song? And I put it on. And sure enough, but it's their version of the old Al Jarreau tune. And they did an ACDC DC tune. And I was like, what? Okay. But it's like a funk jam version. So in that respect, they went, we're going to do this tune, but we're going to totally break it down and rebuild it in our vision and you go that's cool too so there's a creative thing there where they do something and you go this is working for me because it's so different and so unique it's super cool so they, i mean i guess it's a fine line of just navigating your way through what the people who hire you want do they want you to play exactly like the route the record or do you have the freedom uh to do it and i think sometimes if there's more of a jazzy element in any song if they're jazzier players, there's always going to be a, a a component of let's change it up a tiny bit. You know, we we can it's okay. It's we're, we're not it's we don't have we're not going to cover the tune. We're going to play the song, but we're going to do it differently. It's like beautiful. Yeah. And it all comes back to kind of what we're saying at the beginning. It's all about listening. Yeah. If you develop your listening skills, you will know the flexibility that you have to be creative and i think you know as a performing musician you don't need that in every song you just need to know that you have those moments throughout the show of which you can kind of stretch out so as we're winding up here you've been a professional musician for well over 40 years and you've and you've pretty much experienced almost any different type of job situation and gig you're also coming from the the college background as a as a mentor and an educator we've already talked a little bit about this but in sort of closing what advice would you give to any musician that's kind of coming up now that would like to pursue some element of career in music. Yeah, don't do it. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, advice. Okay, well, we're in a unique uh, period of music 
uh, right now. I mean, uh, there's a lot of music education, much, much more than there was when I was young. Uh, there are less places to play. Uh, the money is probably still the same in many cases as it was 40 years ago. There are a lot of negative reasons to go into the business or, or to stay away from the business rather. But man, I, I would, I can't even envision my life without music. It's been such a joy and I've been very fortunate. I mean, I worked my, my, my butt off to play the drums in a certain manner <clears throat> and be professional and, and meet people and work with people, get along with people. All these things I, 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 I did that I thought were valuable, but were just sort of common sense rules of, of, of engagement for being a musician. You know, dress nice, learn your music, read, be reliable, be on time, be early. You know, um, all these things I think have enabled me to sustain a career. Uh, and then the teaching thing was was cool. Teaching makes you a better player. Those, those you know, uh, those things always help. I think the main thing going in for anybody is that, man, you got to love it. And you got to love it so much that you don't want to stop, that you're not willing to quit. Um, but you got to understand going in, it's never been an easy gig. You know, it's never been an easy vocation. I mean, we look back at the romanticism in, uh, of, of the 50s bebop era or bef before that even vaudeville and i always i i made the assumption incorrectly that there was always a ton of work for guys back then and, and then i read an article by baby dodds in burt corral's book drumming men and he was saying oh man you know this is in the 20s drummers if you got to work if you want to make a living man you got to know you got to know all your burlesque beats you got to read you got to know your second line. You got to be able to play some jazz, some jazz. You got to know all, you got to have all your traps. You got to have good gear. You know, you got to get along with people. And I was like, oh my God, it's like a hundred years ago. And it's the same thing, you know, you know, and then you're, I read, you know, you read about Thelonious Monk's autobiography and you go, oh my God, he got banned by the police, uh, police station from having his union card because they controlled the union cards for musicians. Because uh, he hit a police officer, they banned him from working for two years. It's like no wonder he went to Europe. I mean, you know, we think, oh, it's great he's traveling Europe, playing all these great places. Yeah, it's because he wasn't allowed to work in the United States. You just go, oh wow, that's not how I envisioned it at all. You know, so the more you know about things, you just go, wow. It was uh, sometimes it's not what we think, but you know, if you're a creative-based person, it's one of the best places to be playing music with other musicians. I mean, really, when it comes right down to the simplest essence of what we do is it's we, we play music with other people and we communicate them. When I was 13, I made a commitment that said, you know, I, 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 not a wish, but I made a, a, a statement. I, I said that, you know, what I want, I think my teacher asked me, what do you want your life to be? And I said, well, I want to play great music with great musicians. And you know what? If I look back, that's exactly what I've done. It wasn't specific, it was general, but that's what I've done. Now, I've played a lot of bad music with bad musicians too, so there were, there were some pops along the way, but I have weeded those out most, mostly over time. So you, you know that you gotta play the long game, it's not a short game. If you wanna be famous and, and be a celebrity, 
or be a social media star, that's something else. That's that's a different thing. I, I have no advice on how to do that. I don't know anything about that. But if you want to be a musician and play music, with, be good at what you do, yeah, practice a lot, put a lot of time in, and you got to understand that there's there's no guarantees. It's definitely it's definitely a crapshoot. But you 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 try and uh, give yourself as much uh, of a leg up to be good at what you do as many as in, in as many ways as you can. You know, it's all those things I said about being professional. You know. Um, I, I, I've often heard things about myself and I know why people hire me because they go, oh, oh, good. If Mark's on the job, he always takes care of business. He always comes prepared. He always knows the music. He, if something falls apart, he can sometimes tell us, you know, what the form is or, you know, he's going to come in. I'm just going to come in prepared, as, be as professional as I was at 18 as I am at 60. I'm, I'm going to put the same method in. But all the guys I know do that. Larnell does it. DeLong does it. Charlie Cooley, Steve Heathcote, uh, Wilson Laurentian, Randy Cook. Guys in my, my generation, well, Larnell's a lot younger, but they learn what works and they learn how to navigate the industry and, you know, meet a lot of people, play with a lot of people, be versatile, learn as many things as you can because you never know what's going to happen. Did I think I was going to be a teacher? Absolutely not. I would have bet you a million dollars when I left college that I would never be a teacher. And yet I did it in in, in Humber for 18 years. <laughs> you never know where it's, where it's going to take you. So you got to be open to the flow and you got to be like adaptable and flexible when things change. And sometimes the opportunities you always seek never arrive and the opportunities you never expect ends up end up being the ones that are the most fulfilling. Absolutely. Yeah. So in closing what's if people want to connect with you what's the best way to reach you oh well i'm well one thing a musician's got to be easy to find um they can get me on any through my website uh groovydrums.com uh i'm on instagram uh, mark kelso drums i'm on facebook mark kelso i have a jazz exiles page my band and i have a mark kelso fan page but so uh, i'm on messenger um, what else? So I, I'm pretty easy to find, you know, um, you know, I'm easy to find e email or, or phone number, but I'm not going to give that out in a public forum because I don't want to be overwhelmed with information, but uh, you can email me through my, through my website, you know, um, and, or you can come out to my gigs. You know, I keep all, I, I still keep my gigs on my website and I site, I know that's old school, but, uh, that people can find out where I'm playing. Uh, through there and on and, and social media I'm always posting where and when and where I'm playing and if you're if you're if you're you see me playing you know it's like uh, we were talking about earlier like Brian, Brian play please come up and say hi I'm 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 very friendly I'm very friendly and I, I will take the time to talk to you I'll take you take a picture with you and stuff I had a really bad experience when I was 18 with a famous drummer who shall remain nameless people who know me know exactly who I'm talking about and it was such a horrible experience that I walked away going, wow, if I ever have any kind of sort of notoriety where people know who I am in a public forum, I will never do what that guy just did to me. Treated me really bad. And it was just the two of us in a room, <laughs> a big giant room by ourselves. And it was one of the most uncomfortable things I have ever experienced. So harsh lesson. 
but made me kind of go, yeah, don't do that to people because it's not nice. So be creative. Yeah. Yeah. Be creative, be kind, be respectful and find joy in what you do. Oh. So I think that, I, I think that's a great place to end. So I love our conversations. It's always a pleasure to connect with you. And I know that we'll connect again soon. And I might have to reach out to you again for a part two at some point to cover all the things that we actually did even get to. <laughs> but, but, uh, sorry, I'm a yeah, bit of a it, blabber mouth. So no, that, that's that's okay so it's uh it's a pleasure i hope the rest of the year is incredibly successful for you and i wish you all the best thank you michael this was a beautiful conversation thank you i really enjoyed it i loved our i love what we talk about so thank you for having me on your show appreciate it my pleasure we'll chat soon cheers you've been listening to the drummer's pathway podcast please share and subscribe to get the word out and let's keep the discussion going. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.